Leah Allen's daughter is almost two years old. Her two favorite shapes right now is a circle and a triangle, because I show her how you make triangle on your fingers. Leah says she's one of those kids who can make anybody smile. You know, she's running around, she's talking. It's hard for you to be upset around her because she's just so happy and bubbly. But the months after her daughter was born were particularly tough. On top of caring for a new baby, Leah was also caring for her own recovery. I am a recovering addict. Fortunately, Leah had the support of Virginia Commonwealth University's OB Motivate Clinic. They helped her push through. They feel like a second family to me because even when they call to do my appointments, you know, they always like, hi, how you doing? And ask you about you and knowing they care. Like, you don't have to feel alone during your pregnancy. Like, don't give up. Just don't give up because the outcome is so much greater in the end. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, opioid addiction in America. My first guest is Caitlin Martin. Caitlin is Leah Allen's doctor and the director of OBGYN Addiction Services at Virginia Commonwealth University's OB Motivate Clinic. Caitlin, how did you first get interested in treating women who are struggling with addiction? Um, when I first got into it, I, it was kind of serendipitous. I was in medical school in Baltimore, and my first year there, I was, you know, looking for a community service project. I love doing community service, and I found something called the Reproductive and Sexual Health Project, and I said, oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> I'll go do that. It was a offshoot pilot project with the Baltimore City Needle Exchange Program, And what a needle exchange program is, for people that don't know, it's when people are actively using drugs such as heroin or other opioids or other substances, and they're using it by injection, we at least want to reduce the potential harm that can come from that disease of addiction that they're dealing with. And one of those big things we worry about is transmission of infectious diseases such as HIV and hepatitis. So what a needle exchange program does is it allows people to come on with no judgment, no risk of punishment, and they can give their dirty needles for clean ones and other injection equipment so they don't run the risk of acquiring HIV during that time of active use. And so this um, needle exchange program with the Baltimore City Health Department, they wanted to do an offshoot program for um, targeted at reproductive and sexual health. And it actually was in the, quote, red light district, I guess you want to say. It's called The Block. It's where all the exotic dance clubs are. And so a lot of the clients that we saw were women who were working at the exotic dance clubs. And, you know, I'm in my van in the Thursday nights from 7 to 10 p.m., um, you know, giving out birth control and pregnancy tests and doing all the things I love, right? Not knowing that before I got there that I was going to have the opportunity and privilege to speak with these women. And there's a lot of things that came from that, a lot of experiences, a lot of learning. Um, but what really got to me the most were their stories their stories of strength and resilience, of course, but also there's stories of punishment and discrimination and stigma that they experienced. Um, and the ones that really stuck with me because I knew I was going in, you know, going to be a doctor were those experiences of discrimination and judgment in the healthcare setting. Tell me about that. You mean doctors discriminated or judged them? Yeah. They would tell me their stories of how they would go seek help for, you know, different things, right? They have an infection, they have to go to the emergency room and get it treated, or even when they were seeking treatment for their substance use disorder at the hospitals, um, going to get primary care services. But they would tell me these stories of how doctors and nurses and other providers in the healthcare system would just, quote, look at me different. And they would say, you know, I would come in and they would just look at me different and they would turn me away or they would just not speak to me like I'm a human. They would tell me stories about how they would be treated as a lonely other thing, some words that I was told. And I got really angry about that, right? Um, No one should be treated like that, like a 
not a human, right? Not a person, a, yeah. a sister, right? A mom, um, especially as they're making themselves vulnerable to go seek medical care for whatever reason it is. And so that frustration, that anger kind of fueled me, right? And I said, well, gosh, I want to do something about this. I want to be someone different. Had you started off like so many people thinking, hey, addiction is really a long, slippery slope that's really a moral failure, bad choices, Mm -hmm. as opposed to something that's actually a neurological disease? I'm not sure what I came in with. My, I know I came in with predispositions probably in that arena, but I quickly learned a lot about it. <laughs> I quickly learned a lot about how, you're correct, the default in our communities of thinking about addiction is that it is the, quote, bad choices and a moral failure. Of course, there's choices involved, right? There's choices involved in everything, right? You have someone with diabetes or hypertension. There's definitely, quote, bad choices involved in the pathogenesis of that disease. But that's not the end-all, be-all. We know that there's many things that contribute to a chronic disease. And so as I learned more about it, I learned more about what addiction is. I learned about addiction being a chronic disease that does have a neurobiological basis that is very much those shaped by one's life experiences from early childhood onward towards adulthood. So tell me about the women you treat. Your clinic is designed for women who are pregnant, who have gynecological needs, and who also are dealing with addiction. Yes, yes. At VCU, we have developed what we call the OB Motivate program. Most of our patients um, are seeking treatment and recovery support in the pregnancy period, which is not surprising given that we provide prenatal care. Um, If they're receiving medication treatment, for example, for opiate use disorder, they can get that done at the same time as their prenatal care visit, which if you've been pregnant, you recognize that it's a lot of work to go to the doctor a lot. (laughs) So if you can couple those visits together, we offer that. Um, But we have no time limit. We have no time limit on how long we um, provide treatment for substance use disorder through the life course for our patients. For many patients, it is pregnancy, and then they go get their care somewhere else. And for many patients I've been taking care of, um, such as my patient Leah, and I've been taking care of her since she had her baby, and her baby is now very, very big. (laughs) So we have no time limit. Um, It just happens to be that many of our patients do receive treatment at some point during the period of pregnancy. Um, So it's not just me. I'm just one of many on my team. (laughs) And we all carry different expertises in behavioral health, psychology, social work. Um, We have violence intervention and prevention, nursing, case management, et cetera. So um, not everyone needs all those things, but if a lot of people do at least need some of those things at some point on that trajectory towards recovery, and we want to be able to provide that in a person-centered way. How many women do you think aren't being served in your region by this care for their addiction and pregnancy or postpartum period? Yes. So we know that only about one in 10 people in the United States receive treatment for substance use disorder, um, who have a substance use disorder. Those numbers are slightly better in pregnancy when we look at national numbers, but not not too much better. So we know that we're missing a lot of people who are in need of treatment and are not receiving it. What's the primary treatment for addiction recovery for pregnant women? What pharmaceuticals can you give them? It does depend on the type of substance that someone is seeking treatment for. The most common that we deal with in our program is opioid use disorder, so heroin, pain pills, fentanyl, et cetera. Mm. And the treatments that we know are effective and save lives are medication treatments when they're coupled with other support services, like the ones we have in my program. Right. The most common names are um, buprenorphine, which is the active ingredient in Suboxone, and then methadone. Those are the two most common medication treatments that um, do work, are effective, save lives, and also improve outcomes for both mom and baby during pregnancy when they're used. So those don't hurt the growing fetus as far as we know? Exactly. According to the research that we have so far, these medications do not have harmful long-term effects on the infant or on the growing fetus during pregnancy. 
What we do know, unfortunately, that can negatively impact the growing fetus and infants is when people have a substance use disorder, actively using non-prescribed substances and continue to do so during pregnancy and afterwards. What can those substances do to the fetuses? It's hard to tell exactly because all the research that's done on this is hard to do, right? It's hard to get a group of women and say, you take this substance, you don't take this substance. Let's see see what happens to your baby. You know, that research is impossible to do. Um, But from what we call observational evidence, so observational data is data that we just kind of see what happens in the community and we kind of follow outcomes going forward. We don't necessarily, there's some substances that do have direct negative impacts on the growing fetus and infant, but what we do know mainly which leads to poor outcomes for the growing fetus and infant is not necessarily the drug or substance itself, aside from alcohol, we do know that has negative impacts. It's more kind of the environment that can come with a drug using environment. So if someone is using substances that are not prescribed to them, they're probably not very healthy otherwise, right? Unfortunately, they're probably living in a poor social situation or having struggling with mental health conditions or other physical health conditions that are not being addressed. And we know that that overall negative health of the family can negatively also impact the growing child. So treatments that we offer, such as with medication and other support services, lead to better outcomes because we treat the whole person. And we give medications, of course, that help decrease the substance use, but also those medications plus other support services help people stay in treatment and reach all those outcomes from a positive wellness perspective. And that's what leads to healthy families long-term. It seems like what you are doing with them, first and foremost, is saying, here's somebody who doesn't judge you, but beyond that, really cares about you and your well-being. Just to think somebody feels that way about you in the healthcare profession is a huge relief, don't you think? Oh, you know what? You just spoke our words. (laughs) We strive for that every day. You know, my nurses, for example, take a lot of phone calls from patients during the day. And there's a lot of things that are going on in our family's lives that, you know, we can't exactly quote fix, right? But We try our best, (laughs) number one. And then number two, we make sure that every day they walk away knowing that they're cared for, they're loved, and they're being treated as a whole person, as a human being, as a woman, as a mother, if those are the identities that they have. And we want to make sure they they have that, at least from us, because we have control over that. And we strive to do that in a very non-judgmental and compassionate way. I saw a video that your patient that you mentioned, Leah, Leah Allen, had made where she said it was just overwhelming as a young woman with an addiction disorder to give birth one day to a child, having sort of just been in charge of myself prior to that, and then how overwhelming it was to go it alone with a new baby that needed me every minute. Yes, I say to my patients, they probably get annoyed with me sometimes where I say during pregnancy so many times, we're preparing for after pregnancy, right? Right. You do have a period of pregnancy. I I see you a lot. You have to come in. We have to check your blood pressure, you know, all those things. Um, But we talk about more is after pregnancy and what are we going to do now to help build up your recovery, make it the strongest that we can make it, build up your resilience get you connected to the support that you know you're going to need and that you're going to want and let you walk away knowing that you are the best mom ever. And there's going to be hard times. Anyone who's had a baby knows that there's hard times, right? And we want to make sure that our patients have that ability to reach out to us for help, reach out to us for support. And again, we can't quote fix everything, but we want to make sure we do everything possible to give people the resources and the tools so they can work on their recovery and work on their wellness and get all the results that they want out of their treatment. Well, it sounds wonderful. Keep up the good work. Caitlin Martin, thank you for talking with me. Of course, it was a pleasure. Caitlin Martin is director of OBGYN Addiction Services, Obstetrics, and Gynecology at Virginia Commonwealth University's OB Motivate Clinic.
The criminal justice system has the highest concentration of people with opioid use disorders in the United States. If you're in the criminal justice system, you're 400 times more likely to abuse opioids than the general population. Faye Taxman is a professor at George Mason University, and she says the justice system is not at all equipped to handle addiction services. Faye, you're talking about opioid use disorder in the criminal justice system. What's your strongest argument for why it should address treatment and not simply be meeting out justice? Well, the question is, what does meeting out justice really mean? And to answer that question, we have to ask the question, why do we want to punish people and what do we hope to accomplish? If we talk to most citizens, they basically say, well, we just want people to stop doing the things that they're doing. But the question is, how can that happen unless we help people address some of the drivers that got them into the justice system? So when you have a justice system that has the highest concentration of people with substance use disorders, then you basically have to ask the question, is there something that we could do to reduce the recycling of people through the justice system to reduce victimization that occurs from people's use of substances and to help people learn to manage their disease. You saw a family member who had a substance use disorder go through this herself. What did you see as far as the obstacles once she hit the justice system in treating her opioid use? When people come into the justice system and when they're booked into jail and they are active substance abusers and they are withdrawing, oftentimes people get put in a, you know, in a cell by themselves, laying on the floor without any proper medical attention to make sure that the person is well taken care of. So they get sick, they're not feeling good, and all is happening is they're by themselves laying in their aches and pains. Um, And, you know, so the justice system is not really doing a proper type of detoxification or helping people to medically withdraw. What could they do, for instance? What's a simple thing in that process? Well, there's some medications that can be given to reduce some of the withdrawal symptoms. There's comfort, like giving people a place to lay their head that's um, more comfortable than laying on a concrete floor, you know, providing medical attention to make sure that people don't become dehydrated or have other medical problems. So there's a number of different things that can be done that make it more comfortable is not the right word I'm looking for, but to make it more so that a person doesn't have to suffer through the withdrawal process and that we're actually trying to motivate people to really want to change by give, treating them with dignity. Right now, we don't treat people with dignity. And when you don't treat people with dignity, they have less motivation for wanting to basically address some of the issues that affect them and their involvement in the justice system and their use of illicit drugs. So true about dignity. What would it take to create a system that treats people incarcerated with dignity, do you think? Well, I think one thing is that we need to begin by treating the staff who work in those facilities with dignity, too. Um, You know, oftentimes we think of the staff as sort of being non-existent, and therefore the staff are echoing a, a culture in which, you know, the emphasis is really on treating both staff and the people who are residents of the facility negatively. And so if you're not being treated well, the staff have little motivation to really treat their clients or the residents who are coming through the facility well. That's one piece of dignity. The second piece of dignity is to recognize that these are human beings and to treat people with respect from everything from how you talk about people. So instead of using stigmatizing negative language like offender, inmate, convict, 
you know, knucklehead. <laughs> I mean, all the different things. You know, you call people properly, Mr. So-and-so, Ms. So-and-so. You acknowledge them as a human being. I understand medications for opioid addiction do work, but most prisons and jails don't offer them. That is true. Your Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence has worked with the National Institute for Health to try to find best treatment practices for opioid-addicted people in who are incarcerated or in the criminal justice system. What are you leaning toward? What might be the best dosing and medication and setup to help these people? The FDA has approved three medications. One of them is methadone. The second one is suboxone. And the third one is naltrexone. Like any, you know, physical or mental health issue, some medications work better for some people and that there isn't one that's better than the other because it all depends on the individual. So the recommendations are to really expand access to these medications, but also expand the choice that individuals have. Some people may prefer a daily dose. Other people may prefer a monthly um, shot. And the thing we know about people taking medications, whether it's for an opioid disorder or for asthma or diabetes or whatever chronic disease an individual has, uh, that people need to understand how to properly take the medication and they have to believe that the medication will help them. So I guess I'm answering your question by basically saying all three medications are effective. We just have to find the one that works best for individuals. Would it be too pricey to offer them? States aren't going to do that, right? Well, I mean, states are only not going to do it if they don't see a value in it. And if we can reduce substance use disorders, and if we could reduce criminal activity, we can save a lot of money. Um, Every time a person gets arrested, gets processed through the justice system, goes to prison or jail, all of that costs money. And if we can avoid that by providing people with appropriate medications, then we've actually paid for it through reducing the criminal justice system. So what are the top changes you would propose in how we treat people who come into the system with opioid addiction? Well, one top change I would think (laughs) would make most sense is right now we have to ask the question, if someone is arrested and or convicted for a nonviolent offense, why are we using the justice system? Why aren't we just basically creating an access to care so that people, when identified, are offered opportunities to go to either behavioral treatment and get medications um, instead of relying upon the justice system. It doesn't serve our purpose to incarcerate someone just for that person to be released and resume their same behaviors. So that's one. The second one is that it would be really beneficial for us to train and certify justice officials in addiction diseases so that they understand what an addiction disorder is, so they understand the importance of providing medical treatment and, you know, behavioral health treatments for an individual. Right now, we don't have any standardized certification process for people who work in the justice system so that they are better able to help people who become involved in the justice system. And therefore, we sort of, um, you know, use more traditional responses, which is we'll just punish people and hope that they can learn to change their behavior. That's not effective, but that's what we've traditionally done. And the third piece is to really think about ways to incentivize people to change their behavior. 
we know from, you know, long time Skinner's <laughs> experiments that punishing people does not lead to change in behavior or attitudes. And so, you know, we need to think about what are some of the more positive incentives that would help people. As part of that, we should remove some of these collateral consequences like housing restrictions, employment restrictions that make it very difficult for people to reintegrate into the community and resume, you know, normal daily activities. I feel like even if the system were super responsive to getting people placed in excellent treatment programs, there'd be a huge backlog for ever getting into such a program. They're just so scarce and the need is great. Well, right now we do have a dearth of programs, but since Medicaid expansion has occurred, we've actually found ways of delivering services that are effective And there are different variations on how we should be thinking about services. So one thing we know is that by assigning someone a peer navigator, this is, you know, a person who's walked the walk. They've either been incarcerated or they've actually been, um, had a substance use disorder themselves. They can actually work with clients or individuals in a way in which they help them navigate the treatment system, the justice system, housing, uh, transportation, all of the you know basic necessities. And having that sort of professional assistance uh, is very useful. Right now, almost one out of three American adults has been involved in the justice system. So the justice system has a really long reach And the things that we know is that if we can provide more effective therapies and that we could actually make a huge dent in both the opioid crisis that is currently existing, but also in terms of thinking about how to prevent um, and better manage, you know, substance use disorders. Faye Taxman, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. It was a good opportunity, and I look forward to talking with you again. Faye Taxman is a professor at George Mason University's Schar School of Policy and Government and director of the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Since 1999, opioid overdose deaths in the country have increased more than six times. What's driving that incredible rise? Barbara Blake Gonzalez of Old Dominion University is Chief Administrative Officer of ODU's Dragas Center for Economic Analysis and Policy. She's looked at many different factors that contribute to overdose deaths, from commute time to the cities to the number of pharmacies in a town. Here uh, at Old Dominion University in 2016, we were talking about economic development efforts and what we could do to really promote and encourage our talent pipeline for our regional area. And, you know, time and time again, through human resource professionals, economic development officials, and uh, business leaders, uh, we started to hear this same familiar concern the problem of passing drug tests for potential employees. And we started just following that thread of, well, okay, so if we can't uh, meet our demands for our labor because of drug testing and the inability to pass a drug test, well, what's, what's the deeper story here? What's going on? 
you've looked at something called the deaths of despair theory, the idea in the opioid epidemic of what's causing it in particular. What is the deaths of despair theory? So this is the notion that when one has few economic prospects, that would leave that individual more susceptible to addiction. And so uh, in our work in 2020, we did uh, two detailed studies to see if we could find that in Virginia. And although there is empirical evidence that deaths of despair is something that we need to be aware of, we found other factors to be more significant, you know, commuter times, uh, if an individual is in a rural area or an urban area, if the individual has comorbidities, you know, smoking and being obese. So we found sort of these other variables were just as impactful and maybe told us a little bit more about the story of opioids in Virginia. What were some of the most compelling factors as you dug into this research that you think are causes for opioid addiction. When an individual had access to the supply of opioids, uh, when there was more availability. So if you're in an area where you know, doctors or other health practitioners are prescribing more and there is a, a better accessibility to obtain those medications, then you're going to have a higher likelihood of use and abuse and unfortunately overdose. And so that was really the key. You know, economists in general don't care for when there are only a certain amount of providers or suppliers in an area because we, we tend to think that that would uh, decrease competition. But we found in Virginia that those areas that had big chain pharmacies, that had national databases of use and, and tracking, those big chain pharmacies actually made it more difficult for an opioid abuser to obtain multiple prescriptions or receive heavier doses. But if you're in a town that has big chain pharmacies plus any other type of pharmacy or dispensary that there's just basically more suppliers. The more right, suppliers, right. the more access. So the supply side of the opioid market really was very fascinating to us. I wouldn't think that the more rural areas where you see more of the opioid addiction had more pharmacies per person. Um, well, you know, that is one of the things that we saw. Some of the rural areas have the worst overdose rates. And that's sort of my earlier point, that this is a very multifaceted issue and that we can look, you know, someone who's in a rural area and maybe has a higher commute time to somewhere else, there was the predication for overdose and abuse. If there were more prescribers, um, if there were more pharmacies, so we, you know, we're looking at a, a big picture overview. Community health, for example. So we found in our study that those individuals who smoked and were overweight had a higher likelihood to be abusing drugs and, uh, you know, suffer the consequences of an overdose. Um, we also looked at, uh, you know, were there overdose reversing drugs available? Were there community health officials that were able to provide those services or the police department or EMT? And so we're just looking at level after level of trying to figure out how do we win? Because as we know, this has been persistent for two decades. You could do the study, but you couldn't really come up with recommendations for what might reverse it, right? Well, we can. It's just, it's at so many different levels. So those individuals in Virginia that were employed with risky industries, you know, we looked, uh, we took a deep dive at mining. So we looked at some of these professions where, you know, it's it's risky, there's potential for workplace accident, and, and we could find that, yes, so when you've got individuals that are in risky employment situations, you know, 
they're not in good health, um, you know, have they received multiple prescriptions for opioids? Is there a lack of monitoring either on the, you know, the prescriber side or perhaps even on the pharmacy side? And so all of these things add up to, you know, this perfect storm of what of what we can see in Virginia. While your research was focused on Virginia, do you find yes. it's pretty representative of how this problem looks across the country? Yes, we found that we did trend with national standards. Like, for example, in 2017, uh, Virginia healthcare providers wrote a little over 52 opioid prescriptions for every 100 people. In the United States, it's 59. So 59, 52, we're, we're trending on that national level. Now, of course, you know, we've got our hot spots, as many uh, would know, that West Virginia is the center of the opioid uh, epidemic in the United States. In 2017, over 81 prescriptions were written in West Virginia for every 100 folks. All of those pills, um, for some individuals, can lead to an addiction that can be a lifelong struggle that has so many implications for families and communities and have an awareness of what opioid addiction looks like. And it usually looks like a bottle of pills. Barbara Blake Gonzalez is Chief Administrative Officer of Old Dominion University's Dragas Center for Economic Analysis and Policy. Long before today's opioid crisis, there was a crisis of Civil War veterans addicted to opioid drugs like morphine and laudanum. Jonathan Jones is an historian at Virginia Military Institute. He's writing a book on the tens of thousands of Civil War veterans who were affected and the toll addiction took on their lives. How well known or commonly used were opioids before and during the war? Uh, they were the most commonly prescribed medicines in the 19th century U.S., so probably more than half uh, of all prescriptions written by doctors in the Civil War era contained opioids in some capacity. But also, Americans just could buy them over the counter at, at your local general store. You could buy them from a, a traveling doctor. You could even send off a check to Sears, the mail-in catalog store, and they would send you a vial of opium and a couple of syringes for $1.50. So these medicines were very free-flowing. I get morphine and opioids and other things for horrible injuries during the Civil War, but who was using these drugs before the Civil War and what for? I know you said, hey, it was pretty common and people were prescribing it. What sorts of people and for what? Yeah, these medicines were everywhere in part because they were used for a huge range of ailments. I actually at one point sat down to count the number of different uh, medical problems that opiates were prescribed for, and I stopped counting at 150. <laughs> so there was a vast array of, of different ailments, um, everything from pain to coughing. So opioids um, suppress your body's urge to cough, so they were given as cough suppressants. Probably the most common use for opioids actually was not pain, but rather to stop diarrhea. Back in the 1800s, before people could treat intestinal infections and things like that, stopping that symptom, stopping the diarrhea could save your life, and opioids could do that for you. I'm amazed that before the Civil War, it was more women than men who would become addicted to some form of opioid use. Going back as far back as there's been a, a country, as far back as the United States has existed, there have always been Americans who have been addicted to opiates. Um, but usually before the 1860s, before the Civil War, most of those people were actually um, women and particularly white women. And the reason for that has to do with uh, like medical and, and cultural ideas that Americans held back then about pain. American doctors thought that white women were the most physically sensitive to pain. So they were the most likely to get um, prescribed opioid uh, painkillers, for example. And so when we find, uh, when in, you know, doing the course of this investigation, I found lots of examples of pre-Civil War Americans who got addicted to, to laudanum or to opium powder. Almost all of them were uh, white women with a, a few exceptions, but mostly uh, white women. 
when the Civil War happens, all of a sudden you have a huge cohort of American men who, for the first time, their doctors start prescribing them painkillers just to get them through the day, basically. And so the Civil War causes this kind of demographic inversion where, for the first time, there are as many men and even more men, potentially, than women who are addicted to opioids. Uh, eventually, in the late 19th century, the, the men-to-women ratio starts to even out again, so that by the year 1900, you have a, a relatively even number of American men and women addicted. But for the, for a while there, for the, the 1860s, 70s, and even into the 1880s, you had uh, a demographic inversion of what had previously been uh, mostly a women's ailment. Your argument is that we know the scope of the opioid crisis now, but there was a parallel one caused primarily by the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War. Help us understand why that was. What was happening during the Civil War? What forces North and South were creating this? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the um, the, the principal argument that I make um, is that America has had uh, an opioid crisis before. A, lo- a lot of the times in the news, the opioid crisis today is framed as something completely brand new, like something unprecedented. Uh, But the reality is that uh, we have in the U.S. uh, a history of recurrent opioid crises. And so the first one of these was started by the the Civil War. We associate the Civil War with uh, the the question of the future of slavery, and, you know, rightly so. But the Civil War also doubled as a massive public health emergency. Millions of people all got sick and injured and needed medical care all at once. And so what ends up happening is that when that many people get sick uh, all at once is that it puts a tremendous strain on the medical system. And so sometimes doctors have to kind of double down on basic um, therapies. And so the most basic of all therapies in the 19th century was just to prescribe opium. If a patient came to you and you couldn't do something to help them, at least you could give them pain relief. At least you could give them symptomatic relief. And so that's exactly what happens during the Civil War. When millions of of soldiers all contract various diseases like dysentery and malaria and smallpox, when uh, gunshot wounds and and, uh, other kinds of really traumatic battlefield injuries all start happening literally by the millions in a short span of time, just four years, American doctors become incredibly reliant on opioids, more so than ever before. And so that triggers, sadly, it triggers uh, an epidemic of addiction during and after the war that lasted for several decades, um, particularly among injured and disabled Civil War veterans. I'm amazed to hear that many of the major pharmaceutical companies that are in existence today were actually born as part of the war or post-war Civil War effort. Yeah, interestingly enough, um, because the Civil War was such a huge public health crisis, it required a lot of medicine, um, more medicine than you could make at local pharmacies, kind of like mom and pop operations. And so during the Civil War, that's when we see basically the birth of uh, modern Uh, Big Pharma, the seeds of Big Pharma, because uh, to supply military hospitals, which treated hundreds of thousands of patients all at once, the federal government needed a lot of medicine. And so essentially they founded um, government medication laboratories or or, um, factories uh, all over the Northeast to make medicines and send them off to the battlefields and to the hospitals. And so some of those pharmacies were um, the government contracts that were issued to the people that ran those industrial pharmacies gave them enough capital to start um, some of the, the modern pharmaceutical companies that still exist today. Um, one company, Bristol Squibb and Meyer, used to manufacture opium and quinine for the federal government for military use during the Civil War, and it still exists today. When did America start to see it had a tremendous problem that, well, morphine and opium and drugs were badly needed for soldiers in the field. Now they had tens of thousands of addicts. Yeah, it became apparent almost immediately. It's really stunning um, how quickly Americans realized that they had a problem on their hands. Immediately, starting in the post-war years, the late 1860s, uh, Americans realized that as veterans, you know, took off their uniforms and stacked their their muskets and returned back home, many of them came home uh, addicted and got addicted once they arrived home as well. And so starting in the late 1867, 1868, 1869, just a handful of years after the Civil War, you start to see uh, an influx of newspaper articles describing uh, drug-addicted veterans. You start to see doctors embarking on uh, medical studies of the topic. And people realized really quickly that they had a problem on their hands. 
I'll give you an example. In 1872, the state of Massachusetts was alarmed by the perception that drug addiction was on the rise. And so they used the Massachusetts Board of Health, which was a brand new public health agency at that time. One of the first topics that they ever studied in 1872 was drug addiction among Civil War veterans. They surveyed pharmacists and doctors all over the state of Massachusetts and asked them, are Civil War veterans more addicted than other people? How did they get addicted? And so on and so forth. And the answer that the State Board of Health received back was grim. And it uh, reiterated this perception with hard data that Civil War veterans were even more addicted than, than other Americans. That's so interesting because probably there'd be an inclination to say, well, they got drug addicted because they were disaffected and jobless when they left the war and didn't know what to do. So they turned to alcohol and drugs. And yet it sounds like you're saying that no, much of this was from the doctors that had prescribed this for their ailments during the war. Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the surprising uh, findings. So one of the things that scholars know about the fallout from the Civil War afterwards is that um, alcoholism was on the rise, like a lot of soldiers were kind of self-medicating with alcohol. And so that's kind of what I expected to find with opioids. But what I actually found was that most Civil War veterans traced their addictions directly to a prescription that they had either gotten in an army hospital or from a, a civilian doctor after they came home from the war. How were they suffering from these addictions? How would you describe what the addictions were doing to these men? To put it really bluntly, opioids ruined Civil War veterans' lives. Um, so many men suffered from incarceration. Americans believed basically that addiction was a choice and that uh, many veterans who couldn't quit taking morphine just simply chose to take morphine. And so they were kind of shunned. Uh, oftentimes they wound up in jail Many men were actually uh, committed by local county courts or by the state to mental institutions where they might be admitted for opioid addiction, but they usually never left. So I kind of think of those as being like medical jails. So it was, it was a pretty grim story. Uh, addiction also led pervasively to poverty. Uh, these medicines, even though they were cheap at, over time, um, the, the toll really adds up. And a lot of Civil War veterans left the war in great poverty. These medicines took up uh, a huge chunk out of Civil War veterans' family budgets for, for men that were already not bringing bring in a lot of money. And so one of the most, I think, tragic examples of that is that I discovered a letter of a Civil War veteran to his doctor where he's describing the fact that he needs to take a certain amount of morphine to remain functional every day because he's addicted, but he can't afford it. And so he's begging the doctor to basically provide him with loaned morphine that he can hope to repay later on. But for me, that's uh, such a tragic example of the many ripple effects of, of addiction. It causes a lot of suffering for veterans and their families. Was there any way for them to get treatment back then? What did treatment look like in the post-Civil War years for addicts? This is uh, a really interesting topic because it's, again, one of those parallels between the first um, opioid crisis after the Civil War and today's opioid crisis today. Americans after the Civil War, just like today, were desperate for medical care for addiction to the point that um, because of, of the lack of medical regulations at that point, basically anybody could kind of set up shop and say, I'm a doctor. And so there were so many uh, addicted Civil War veterans and others in the post-war period that essentially medical fraudsters realized that there was an opportunity to make some money here. And so uh, what you started to see in the 1860s and the 1870s was uh, a pop-up industry of like medicines that were uh, basically snake oil medicines that you could buy over the mail that purported to cure you of opioid addiction. But in reality, they were fraudulent. So they didn't do that. That was one option that a lot of, of Civil War veterans put a lot of hope and faith and money into that did not pay off. Um, those products did not work. Uh, another example, though, one that was more effective and one that was actually kind of, in a lot of ways, the origins of the modern drug rehab were uh, these clinics that you could go to in major cities like New York and Richmond and Washington, D.C. Doctors eventually figured out that if they slowly lowered the morphine or opium dose that a person was taking, that it could help with uh, addiction. And so these were called inebriety clinics. 
And like I said, these are I really consider these to be the first iterations of drug rehabs because they they took uh, a really similar approach to uh, treating opioid addiction that modern day clinics do too. What are the parallels you see between this first crisis mm. and the opioid crisis of today? For me, one of the most striking parallels is the amount of stigma that persists around uh, drug addiction, and particularly opioid addiction today, because of the beliefs, the cultural beliefs that American society kind of clings to um, about people with substance use disorder. Uh, a lot of times, many Americans consider uh, opioid addiction to be a vice, like a uh, almost a sin um, rather than a medical condition. And so it was the same thing back after the, the U.S. Civil War. Veterans suffered from um, prescription drug addiction, but people who looked at them thought that it was their choice to abuse opioids, not something that their bodies made them do, uh, if that makes sense. And so obviously that had a lot of negative ramifications for people. Like I said, they ended up in jail, they ended up institutionalized, uh, poverty and, and other kinds of social ramifications. But the fact that that stigma has existed for a century and a half and not diminished should tell us a lot about our need in today's society to reevaluate how we help people with substance use disorder. Well, Jonathan Jones, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Jonathan Jones is a professor of history at Virginia Military Institute. His forthcoming book is tentatively titled Opium Slavery, The Civil War, Veterans, and America's First Opioid Crisis. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. Virginia Humanities has a new paid fellowship opportunity for educators committed to creating inclusive learning experiences for a Virginia K-12 classroom. Selected candidates will be funded through a National Endowment for the Humanities Sustaining the Humanities Grant. Applications are due by January 7th. Please find more at virginiahumanities.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>